Hi guys, welcome to Art Talk with April, season three. I'm April Harris of Inked April, located in Birmingham, Alabama. We have some wonderfully inspiring artists on this season. Let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to Art Talk with April. Today we have Jean Vogel. She is a tapestry fiber photography artist. <laughs> um, it is so good to get to talk to you. And you're like you are located in Missouri, correct? In St. Louis, yes. St. Louis. All right. Well, how did you get started um, in art? You know, I think like a lot of artists, I started as a kid. Mm -hmm. And also like a lot of artists, I had family members who said, that's so great. You're so cool. You can't make a living like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in the sixties and I actually had a, a, I had parents who thought I really could be anything. I was the oldest child and um, my dad was studying to be a lawyer when I was growing up and I was interested in what he was doing. And he's like, okay, well, you can be a lawyer too. So I was groomed from the very, from the time I was maybe eight or nine, 10 years old to be a lawyer. But wow. also, I was always writing stories. I was drawing stuff. I was taking pictures. My dad had, had uh, been in Germany during the Berlin Wall crisis uh -huh. in 1961. And there really wasn't a whole lot for him to do while he was there they just you know made sure nobody shot at each other so he bought cameras and he gave he brought home one of the cameras and when I was about 10 or 11 he let me start using one of his good German cameras which was really wonderful so I started doing that at the same time I was really interested in drawing and I had this idea I could be a great artist so anybody my age will remember the little ads on the back of comic books like draw this mouse yeah <laughs> so I drew that mouse and I sent it in unbeknownst to my parents until they get a telephone call saying oh she's brilliant she needs to be enrolled in our school which is really what it was all about but I didn't know that <laughs> I just knew how to address an envelope and lick a stamp because <laughs> we looked stamps back then as <laughs> anybody knows doesn't know we used to look stamps and there was this tumult in my house I mean how could you dare turn this in you can't be an artist don't be ridiculous we'll never do I mean it was a huge deal I just remember all this yelling and screaming oh no <laughs> I think my parents had you know two pennies to rub together maybe once a week I mean there was no way they were going to pay for art classes so that was and I think a lot of people have those experiences you know art's a wonderful thing but you do it as a hobby you don't do it as a professional so, you know, went to school, did all the things that I normally do, became a journalist, didn't love journalism, um, and really started getting back into photography in my 20s. And that's when I started doing shows. Um, this was back when art fairs literally were, we put our art hanging on fences. Wow. <laughs> we didn't have tents. We just, there were a bunch of people on the street. And we'd hang up the, the art on the fence and people would buy it. And it was so unprofessional, but you know, people bought stuff. I mean, yeah. That was back in the early eighties. Then it just, it, then it just grew. I mean, it, at a certain point you realize this is what I'm meant to do. And if, you know, it's, it's said that way of writers too. If you are an artist or a writer, if you need to do it, you're going to do it no matter what it's a compulsion. It's, it's a need and you just, you do it. 
And it doesn't really matter what ends up happening with it. It's something you have to do. And if it's good enough, it can get out in the world. So I was um, fortunate enough to be considered good enough that I could get my work out in the world. So I did art for a long time in photography, alternate process photography, which basically means, basically means historical photography. Um, oh. And then about, and I'd always worked in fiber. Mm. Oh. So I had a really great influence in my grandmother, my maternal mother, grandmother mm. um, who was an artist. And she didn't become an artist until she was widowed in her 50s. She taught me a lot. She also taught me a lot of fiber stuff. She taught me how to do embroidery as a little girl. Mm -hmm. That's what we did in the 60s. We were little, little people. We embroidered our little pillow slips. Can you imagine embroidering pillow slips? <laughs> okay, now I've been, I've been learning embroidery lately. So, you know. <laughs> I do a lot of it. It's really wonderful. But, you know, it was, it was a gentle art. Um, that was one of the things we did. I learned, I always knew how to knit. I could crochet a little bit. Um, you know, there's not a fiber thing I haven't tried. I don't do them all and I don't do them all well. But about eight or nine years ago, I started really getting into um, spinning yarn because mm. I thought, well, you know, this is something that seems kind of interesting. So once you go down that fiber rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a little bit of cloth weaving, not very much, just a little bit. I done that for years but you start going down that fiber rabbit hole and suddenly you're buying spinning wheels and then you're buying looms, <laughs> and then you're buying more looms and then you're buying tapestry <laughs> you're trying this you're trying then you're dyeing your wool it's like it's just <laughs> it takes over so i and i was really interested in tapestry so most people have misunderstandings about what tapestry is it's not needlepoint it's really a weaving um, and I, I describe it often as if you think about what like a, a Mexican rug or a Navajo rug looks like, that's more like what a tapestry is. It's kind of a picture mm -hmm. um, it's with wool, but it's not, the weft doesn't go all the way across back and forth in most mm -hmm. part. It's, it's, um, it's called discontinuous weft, which is another one of those words that'll make people <laughs> afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so it's, it's a way of, of creating a cloth that's that's heavy mm -hmm. um and mm -hmm. um decorative yeah and it can also be on the floor i mean you know I've, I've woven rugs that can you know you can actually step on and walk on it'll be okay they're really sturdy yeah. but when i started doing that and i was taking some classes and taking you know studying with people mm -hmm. reading everything i could read i realized i really sucked at it <laughs> And, you know, here's something that happens to people. And so I was in my mid-50s when that happened. And I was a professional artist. I was doing art fairs. I was selling my art. I was doing exhibits. You know, people knew me as a pretty well-known photographer in the area. And all of a sudden, I just couldn't do this competently. I mean, I just couldn't do it. It's like, what is wrong with me? I'm used to being a competent artist. And all of a sudden, I'm producing this crap. It's like, what is this? <laughs> Oh my so one of two things happens when when artists change medium, which is really what I was doing. I was changing a medium. Yeah. And one of two things happens. You either quit or you double down. So I double down. You know, like anything, it's how much time you put in and how much work you put in, mm. and how much practice you put in. I mean, yeah. 
sometimes we suck at stuff. So I just kept working at it until I felt like I didn't suck at it anymore. Yeah. Other people thought I didn't suck at it anymore. So <laughs> that's a really long answer. How did I get started? <laughs> oh, the wonderful. Okay, so I, our time is up. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That is so interesting. And I love how you put that once you got going down that rabbit hole you were just start doing all these things and it tried this and start trying this and experimenting with this how did you come about like your particular vision and the way that you're creating you know it's a mystery (laughs) (laughs) well that was a much shorter answer There are a lot of influences in our lives. I mean, I am especially influenced by um, feminism. Mm -hmm. I'm especially influenced by culture. I'm especially influenced by the things that are going on around me. So a lot of my work is in response to what's happening. I think anytime artists create art rather than just creating a really pretty picture, which has lots of value in our world too. We need pretty But sometimes art is a really a response to what's happening around us, or we're trying to figure out what's yeah. happening around us, or we're trying to answer a question. Yeah. Like what's happening? Why is this happening? So how can I respond to it? So, I mean, I really look at art, all kinds of art as communication. Mm. It's a manifestation of an idea. You know, you, yeah. you've got, you're trying to figure out what's happening in the world and you create something that maybe represents it, maybe ask some more questions, maybe... Mm triggers memories in people or triggers other ideas. I mean, it's just such a great conversation among people. So um, my early, really early influences was um, Diné Navajo rugs and and their weaving. Um, I was exposed to it as a kid on a family trip out West. And I was, I just fell in love with that kind of weaving. Now I would never reproduce Navajo designs. I mean, those are different kinds of designs. But what we can do is learn the techniques and learn how people do things and then use that to express our own ideas. And mm. so, so incredibly grateful to the, the artists who have taught me. Um, there are some women in, in Gallup, New Mexico, who are just fabulous, amazing, amazing. Wow. So I, I'm really grateful that they share their knowledge because it's yeah. changed the way I looked at tapestry. Um, which is, you know, we could go on for that for hours, and they really should talk about that rather than me talking about it. But it has influenced my work. Yeah. Um, and like I said, what's, whatever is happening around me in the world influences mm. so a lot. And I also like trying different things. I like trying, you know, combining things. Yeah, it's like uh, some of the work that I'm doing is cyanotypes, which is the oldest form of what photography it dates to the 1840s. And it's there, a lot of people know them as sun prints. You probably did them in summer camp. You have some coated paper and you put a leaf on top of it and you expose it to the sun and you wash it in water and then you've got a print. Well, that's, that was the very first kind of photography. And I've been doing some of that with digital negatives that I create a digital negative and it's a contact print. So the one, the negative goes right on top of the, of the fiber. I'm using fiber. Uh-huh. Put a piece of, of glass on top of it so that the negative doesn't blow away. Expose it to the sun. Um, anywhere from five minutes to two hours, depending on what time of year it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, the January sun does not work very long. <laughs> <laughs> very 
And that's vacation I, time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually, I don't do that much in the winter, but it can take a long time. Um, normally I'm out in, in the sun in August or July. And yeah. I'm sweating and I'm watching everything. We're going to that back inside. Uh, so then I take those, those, those fibers and then I stitch them with um, a traditional sachiko, which is a Japanese um, embroidery technique. Wow. Yeah, so I, I really like kind of combining things and, and learning about how something was used and then how can we use it in modernity. Wow. Because, you know, the cyanotypes come from the 19th century. The sachiko comes from the 17th century Japan. Well, let's let's see what we what they look like when they combine together yeah. but I think it's important that we understand the history of them and and the traditions of them before we you know use them in our own sure own art that's fascinating that you you've put together such different types of i mean like different time periods different cultures together to create something well, you know, there's there's symbols and and techniques that we've been using, you know, for I mean, we don't even know how long. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the oldest piece of fiber that we can find is what maybe eight nine thousand years old. Well, if they did it that well nine thousand years ago, maybe they were doing it even better twenty thousand years ago. But we just don't have a piece of it. So mm-hmm. it, it, that's one of the things I really like about fiber and weaving is it connects all of the cultures around the world it connects it connects humanity all around the world and mostly it connects women it connects the generations of women because this was something that women normally did we've always been responsible for clothing our family yeah yeah and that is so true i've never actually thought about that like um you know how pretty much throughout you know all of humanity and all the different cultures you know that the women would have been creating things with fabrics and sewing and all kinds of things and like that weaving all sorts of materials i mean every yeah. culture has weaved something yeah every culture has been able to figure out how to take a piece of a fiber of grass or reed or animal hair and twist it and or move it, manipulate it some way so that it creates something else. And that's what I think is so important about craft today. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, that makes your work even more meaningful, you know, that you're taking something from various cultures, but in itself, I mean, it's, it's a human practice, right? It's something that... Absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely... Um, Human practice. Yeah, I would not want to ever appropriate specific ideas or um, symbols sure. from other cultures. I use those from my own culture, um, but mm. you know, we share a lot of cultures. I mean, the piece that I've got behind yeah. is the most recent piece that I've just done. It's and it it shows the Hamsa, which is yeah. a Jewish or Muslim symbol. A lot of people know it as the hand of God in in Islam. It's called the, the hand of Fatima. Um, but it represents blessings or protection. Oh. So in Judaism, if the hand is pointed down, it represents blessings. If the hand is pointed up, it represents a protection or a stop sign. 
And wow. this piece behind me is called Reprotections and a Warning. And it's a, it's a COVID piece. It was deliberately a COVID piece. But the hand is one of those symbols that's so universal. Um, and it also contains a spiral. So a spiral is also a really universal symbol across geography and across time. Yeah. Trying to pull those things back together is my way of trying to communicate about the universality of humanity. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think when you were talking about that, I was thinking about actually cave paintings, you know, yeah. and how they would just that's make the first, a that's the first thing. <laughs> I, absolutely. But you, I mean, you'll see it everywhere. I mean, it'll, no matter where, what continent you go to, where humans have been, and that we still see evidence of human existence, you'll either yeah. see footprints in the sand or you'll see hands on the walls. Yeah. So tell me about your COVID series that you've been working on these past yeah. few years. Uh, years. That's <laughs> pretty much all I've been doing. Yeah. I mean, I it seems like it's there. been like <laughs> maybe a year, but it's, it's longer than that. <laughs> You know, I had this small new little loom and I created a piece on it. It's just, it was just kind of a piece I was working on. And sometimes work just creates itself. Yeah. And I, it was in March, right after the shutdown, maybe as we were shutting down. Yeah. And it was, I was, I was just trying to express what I was feeling at the time. It was, it was a throwaway piece. It wasn't a throwaway piece, but it was, it was just something I was doing. It wasn't created for some, some purpose. I wasn't working on a show. I wasn't working on a body of work sure. because I've got an ego. I put it on Instagram. <laughs> that's what I thought it was. And people really responded to it. It's like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then as I started sketching, cause I always, I, I tried to do sketching regularly. I'm not, I don't do it incredibly well. Um, but it, See one way of getting ideas down, and yeah. every sketch came up a COVID piece. So I wove another COVID piece, and then I wove another COVID piece. And I think I have eighteen or nineteen pieces done now over the last three years, and each piece started representing what was happening at the time. Yeah. So it's kind of a narrative of the three years. It's a very, um, it's more of it's a conceptual narrative, and I think it's still kind of happening but I'm trying to bring it to a close because I'm trying to move on to <laughs> but they keep coming up I was like yeah <laughs> that's just what happens when I think when you work in series of work but um for the last year I have been trying to get a um I've been submitting it to shows I mean individual pieces have been in exhibits a lot um and one piece actually won a top award which I was just so grateful oh wonderful yeah i mean it's always nice when they give you an award it's even nicer when it comes with a nice check thank you very much <laughs> organizations for realizing we really appreciate these things uh, um this is you know this is a tough way to make a living and i submit these proposals and you know proposals are they're, they get hundreds and hundreds of proposals so quad cities art center just informed me last week that accepted the COVID series for a solo show Oh, wonderful. So that's in Rock Island, Illinois, Quad Cities up in Western Illinois, Eastern Iowa. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. I'll frame to get it ready and, you know, maybe make another piece or two for it. But I'm excited about that. Oh, that's awesome. 
So I love that you um, talked about, you talked about a couple of things there. Do you typically work in series? Yes. Yeah. I have always worked in series. Um, partly because it's, I think it's easier to work in a series yeah. because you get, you get one idea and it just adds to the next idea and it mm. one kind of moves, moves it along. I've got a lot of series in process. Yeah. I always have a lot of series. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's always helpful to um, create that cohesive body of work often that mm-hmm. artists are good at jurors are looking for an artist. You know, I talk to new artists all the time and, you know, they've, their work is all over the place. It's like, you've got to come up with, mm-hmm. having all over the place is really good because that's where you can figure out where your vision is. Yeah. But once you see something, you need to not duplicate it, but, but you know, then it's also easy just to kind of get stuck. And just keep doing the same work yeah. over again. You don't want to do that either. So yeah. So do you typically try to like when you're doing your series? Are you? I, I'm. You know, just kind of spitballing. Uh, what I think it would be like. You are inspired by something, something that's going on in the world. You're thinking, I want to make a piece about this, and then you go ahead and really kind of do a deep dive exploration kind of thing of that subject when does the series end you know that would be a really good way to work (laughs) (laughs) no uh, yeah I mean I think that happens maybe probably in a much more informal way but yeah I'm one of those people who like doing research so I will I if something occurs to me I will try to find out more about it Mm-hmm. Um, and that just always adds to more idea. I mean, you know, working every day leads to more ideas all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, where does your inspiration come from? It's like, well, because I'm working every day. I mean, I'm working yeah. every day. And that's what you have to do. Um, whether you're doing it professionally or not, if you're serious about it, that's what you have to do. So, you know, where does the series end? Yeah, I, you know, I think it has natural beginnings and natural ends. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, kind of when you, you Sorry. feel like, okay, this series is done. I'm, I'm good with this. Or if the work coming out isn't as, you know, is, a more, is mediocre. It's not as good as I want it to be. It's like, oh, maybe I have this one on its course. Um, with yeah. COVID, I just want COVID to be over. Probably <laughs> <laughs> <it> all. <laughs> I had a reception last week, or no, two days ago last week. Um, and it was the first time I was in a group of people without my mask on. And it was really a little freakish, but I just decided I had this magical cone of protection that was going <laughs> to take care of me while I was talking to patrons. Because I wanted to make sure that, you know, we have good conversations. And it's hard to be in a group of 30 people and we're all wearing masks. And we're trying to talk and nobody can understand. And what I wanted to point out about that, too, is that you're sending out a proposal right. to different galleries like how are you going about doing that like what advice would you give to someone who is interested in going that direction sure so you know i think it's really important first to have people disagree about this but i think really it's important to get your work out into group exhibits just to mm-hmm. see if the work is good i mean yeah. not everybody will like it and you get rejections all the time everybody gets rejections yeah it's i think it's important just to find out where where the work is landing with people and then 
when it does land with people, you can find out, you can go to the exhibit itself and talk to people and see what, what they respond to and what they don't respond to. So then you have an idea and some confidence mm. to go to a gallery and respond to their RFPs, their requests for proposals. I normally go to nonprofit galleries because I'm kind of a nonprofit person and I like supporting the nonprofit centers. So that's generally where I go. Um, there are also private galleries that'll you know, work in different ways. But most you know, university galleries, uh, nonprofit galleries will accept proposals and they have guidelines. Yeah. So the first thing to do is find out if your work fits in with the kind of work that they do, that they, mm. they exhibit. Um, so everybody's got a website. I mean, this kind of uh, research is really easy now. Can I tell you, but <laughs> easy, right? it was not easy. You had to go to the gallery and talk to people. Now we can just Google it. That's fine. It's so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm grateful for being that spoiled because that was <laughs> You know, we used to have people who real who are younger artists don't realize that most when we were applying for shows or exhibits um, before maybe two thousand five, we had to send slides to people in the mail. We sent slides and then yeah. they send them back to us, <laughs> and it, it was through the mail. It was awful. <laughs> I mean, just getting slides made and then yeah. you I'm know. <laughs> photographing your work to make sure you yeah. no, it was it was a huge industry and we don't have to say we're so grateful anyway but i mean just you know you never want to cold call a gallery mm. you never want to walk into a gallery and say i am a great artist or i'm a lousy artist or i'm a beauty or whatever and you should have my work i mean you just really need to find out who they are and what kind of work that they have mm. um, and look at their proposals and you apply to them you got to follow the rules and everybody has different requirements, but you just have to read what they say and follow the rules. Um, I was an executive director for a while of a, of a nonprofit art gallery, community art gallery. And can I tell you how many artists don't bother to read the rules? Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to tick off a director, it's you just kind of ignore the rules because they're just going to toss your stuff away. So the most important thing is do what they ask. Yeah, yeah. And really good images in a, in a cohesive body of work. Mm. And, you know, make sure that you get some good crits on the work. Yeah, that's some, that's excellent advice. I've often wondered, like, what the person who is taking these proposals are, are going through and how many people are actually doing the things correctly, you know, or even maybe know how. Right. I, mean, I think most people are, but there, there are other people who just. They're just like, I'm going to send it. They'll, if they like it, they'll. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're not stubbornly saying this isn't important. They're just, they're just not realizing how important it is to actually do what they have, you know, that the images are at the right size. That yeah, they're yeah. The image file name is proper. I mean, that those kind of things can knock somebody out of an exhibit so quickly because that means that somebody has to do extra work. Yeah. Yours isn't the only one coming in. I mean, you know, some exhibits get 12, 1500 submissions. Yeah. Oh so, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, younger artists, 
you know, follow the rules. rules. <laughs> because that's just one stumbling block, you know, if you could go with the flow, do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and find out if you're working. You know, you know, if you do nudes and it's a small family gallery with a lot of kids, you know, they're probably not going to be interested in your nudes. Or if you do yeah. tribal photography and this center only has, you know, fiber, well, they're not going to be interested in you either. Boy, wouldn't that be a nice to have a center that just did fiber? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, galleries and, uh, and centers have different, very specific visions for themselves and they want to sure. show certain kinds of work and your work just might not be part of it so yeah, yeah. don't take rejection personally it's not personal uh, that's a huge one <laughs> it is. i mean it really it, it is huge people you just can't take it personally you can be yeah. disappointed you can say well who are these morons who don't like my work <laughs> <laughs> well, <really? laughs> First of all, there, there are so many applications coming in, so they have to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unless you really messed it up, it's not about who you are. Yeah, yeah. If it's blind, if it's blind. If it's not blind, it might be about who you are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of discrimination still in the art world. So. Sure, sure. Some gatekeeping there. Yeah. So with your work, um having a lot of feminist kind of messages like how do you especially in this time where i feel like that is becoming a very important subject right now there's a lot of powerful art about you know women's rights and things like that how do you navigate what it is you want to say toward something that's so, I guess, important right now. And then, and then, you know, there being a lot of other people who are thinking about that too. Are we, are we going to say the A word? Oh, you, you say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a really important question because, um, you know, feminist art pretty much, I don't want to say it started, but it became much more visible starting in the 70s. There's a lot of things that we did in the 70s and 80s um, that younger artists are doing again. So I'm hoping that younger artists kind of look at what their mothers and aunts and grandmothers did in the past so they don't have to recreate it. They can build on it. Um, But I I think it is really important because in, you know, one of the things I think you're alluding to is reproductive freedom and abortion. Sure. this is definitely something we need to talk about. How do you think, how can we talk about that without um, seeming reductive or by doing the same thing over and over again? And I, I think that's a really good question. I, I really don't know. Um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about that because it's a lot of the issues that I want to deal with as well. You don't want to be too stereotypical. You don't want to, you want to say something that has some meaning and some deep thought. So yeah. You know, I think we have to respond the way we respond. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that a lot of people are doing what they want to be doing right now because we're just so afraid of what's happening in the political world. 
Yeah. But I have been seeing an awful lot of really wonderful art coming out of it. And it's, yeah, I've got lots of sketches, but they're just not quite there for me yet. So, I mean, I did some years and years ago. Um, and when abortion was safe and legal in this country. Yeah. Not safe and legal in this country. Reproductive freedom is waning and in danger. And, and women's lives are in danger, which just scares the achievers out. And really does. It's terrifying me. Yeah, absolutely. But we think it's okay for women to die and not have, and then be forced to care, care children. But there are so many other issues too. I mean, we've got, um, you know, we've got serious issues with trans women being killed. We have serious issues with um, indigenous women being killed. We have serious issues, issues with black women not being able to give birth without dying. I mean, it's just, oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, there's so much going on that we have to be able to respond to. Sure. So, yeah. I don't have an answer to that, but I, it, it's definitely in the back of my mind. I know it's a lot of artists are working on that. Yeah. It's, it's definitely something that we will um, continue to work on and bring into the, into the world because like I said, art is a communication. Yeah. Yeah. And on, on that point too, you know, like, um, like I, in the past, I've done a little bit of sort of political stuff when something was really, you know, meaningful to me or whatever. But at the same time, like, how do you have, like, in your opinion, when you're going to speak to something so important through your work, at some point, there's a line where you know, instead of being, um, like, attacking or, um, like, finding that, that sweet spot where you can have communication in a conversation without putting off yeah. people, you know? No, I don't, I don't know if we're going to, I don't, well, I don't know how to do that. Um, years ago, in the, gosh, in the 80s, um, I worked at Planned Parenthood. I was the director of public mm-hmm. affairs for Planned Parenthood of the greater St. Louis region. I don't think that was our name. Or something like that. And I did yeah. a lot of lobbying. Yeah. And, you know, abortion was safe and legal, but we all we had people who were trying to whittle away at it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, parental consent laws, and there were the fake abortion clinics that were pulling women in, young women, and saying, you know, we'll take care of you. And of course, they weren't taking care of them, but we were working against those things. And yeah. I didn't go to Jefferson City, which is the capital in Missouri, which was hard for me to believe at this moment, but that was run by Democrats at the time. And, wow. and I would go and lobby, and there would be a lobbyist from the pro-life group. And we had lunch together. Yeah. I mean, we, and this was a man, and we knew each other, and we could joke. And as human beings, not joke mm-hmm. about it, but we could joke as human beings. We'd have lunch together. We could talk. We mm-hmm. didn't vilify each other. And it's, I, you know, it's shocking to me that I had those experiences and that we used to be able to do that. Yeah. I don't see us ever being able to do that again. I cannot mm-hmm. imagine sitting down with somebody who is, who so vehemently believes that my reproductive freedom and the reproductive freedoms of anybody with a uterus is is not valuable. I, I don't I don't want, I don't know what to say to them. So when I kind of create work, 
I think I'm going to, I know I'm going to piss some people off and I'm okay with that. I mean, I, uh-huh. I learned a long time ago that how people respond to my work is how they respond to my work. Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not on me. That's not my responsibility. They respond to it the way they respond to it. Um, normally it's a good thing. And my work re- requires, I think everybody's work, not just mine, everybody's work requires that somebody else respond to it because otherwise it's just going to sit in a drawer. I mean, it has yeah. to be. And people have to respond to it. That's kind of the point of the work. Um, and I guess it's how we create the work and what kind of a message we're trying to send. <laughs> sometimes my work hits people over the head and sometimes it's really, really subtle. And yeah. I'm, I think I'm moving more toward more subtle work because I do want a, a civil conversation. Mm. Um, but I really think art can humanize us in a way that we've started to lose parts of our humanity. Yeah. So really have. Um, that's one of the things I think is so valuable about craft and how, mm. how important, not just making the art, but making sure it's crafted well or that it's, it's something that we use every day, like this cup, you know, it's, we have things that are real, really wonderful to us that are made by a human hand, and we just don't have that very much anymore. Uh, we, have, we, we, have, we have things that are mass produced, so our humanity has been taken away from those objects. Well, we used to know the makers. Yeah. And we would respect the object because we respected the maker. The object was valuable because it was useful and it lasted, um, you know, so, you know, the bookshelf that grandpa made or great grandpa made, yeah. the quilt that grandma made, it's just, um, we, we really valued those things and they lasted a long time and we weren't throwing things away. Mm. So I think if we can return to this idea of, of subtlety and craft and respecting the maker, mm. And, and putting really beautiful objects into our everyday lives, that maybe we can also start to return to a little bit of that humanity. And maybe that can take us back to a time where we see each other as people and that we can have some of these more difficult conversations. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's the best pretty big statement. <laughs> no, that, yeah, I know. I probably should have thought that through a little more carefully. <laughs> I just immediately feel like uh, I'm thinking about the internet, just how we, it, it is so dehumanized and you're not even looking at the artist on the other side of that computer or phone or whatever as a person, you know, and people just say all kinds of things. Have you ever had anyone that had like such an, adverse reaction to something you created that you were like oh my gosh <laughs> I'm a human being you know I did art fairs for 25 years oh okay so I out there you know with my little tent in the heat yeah. and the rain and the cold whatever it was and talking to the public yeah and, and, um most of the art fairs I did almost all the art fairs I did was in photography alternate mm-hmm. process photography so photography is not there aren't a lot of women photographers on the art circuit. There are some, but not a lot. It's pretty male dominated. And, you know, I've been doing it for a while. So I would yeah. have a lot of, of men, you know, mansplain my work to me. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I had I had one guy come up to me and read my artist statement and tell me it was wrong. Oh no! Like, how could that be possible? <laughs> you mean I don't? You think I don't believe it because the artist statement? <laughs> he just didn't like my take on what I thought photography was. And it's like, okay, um, you know. <laughs> I would have, so those are the kind of things that happened to me. I mean, it was generally men who were challenged by a woman. Some of them said, you didn't really take all these pictures. Who took these pictures? Oh my God. Absolutely. I had people come (laughs) up and say, did you you go to all these places? It's like, no, I just. (laughs) I have to say bad words on this, but I mean, really. I mean, it's just, it's kind of extraordinary how challenged men are by women. And, and you see that if you're, you're working in the art world where, where there are a lot of men. And men are really threatened by us. I don't know what we could have possibly done. Except give birth to humanity, but other <laughs> I can't believe the human, what can you do? <laughs> Okay, I don't know, man. I love you, man. I'm married to a man. I gave birth to a man. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, my goodness. Well, that that's a good, very good point that you're making there too. You know, like I've seen a lot coming out about that, about their like the the whole art world being so male dominated. Well, white male dominated. Let's yeah. Make, let's make sure. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Black men don't have any any more uh, opportunities than we have, I think. No, anyways, you, know, you still look at the museums. Um, it's, you know, there might be 12% of women represented in museums. I mean, it's just, it's, you'll see it in, you'll see it in art fairs. You'll see it, you know, there are women, a lot of the women will be painters and um, jewelers. Mm. And men will be photographers and woodworkers and sculptors. And the when there's a crossover, it, it can be very difficult for those people. And mm-hmm. when they're just talking to the public, because you never know who's going to walk into your booth. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think it is tough. Um, we're still not recognizing that art is still defined by the white European male concept of beauty or importance. Wow. And we have, to, we have to press against that. Absolutely. And, oh. we have to, you know, I get that they're feeling threatened with this. They're losing their power. They don't, they don't have to lose their power. They just have to share their power. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of room for everybody, right? Does it have to be? And why wouldn't you want to have multiple voices and experiences being, you know, shared with the world through art and that kind of thing? Cause I mean, even even so, you know, the more voices, the more unique voices that are out there and the more experiences, the more art grows and develops and, you know, metamorphoses into, you know, something even better than... The most important thing I ever learned from being on the art circuit, art fair circuit for such a long time is no artist is my competition. 
Mm, yeah. We do not compete with each other. I mean, there, there are people who get really jealous of each other. Mm. And, you know, like, why are they getting all the sales? It's like, well, that's what people want right now. Yeah. You have to, nobody's taking away from me unless they're stealing from me, which has happened a couple of times. But. Oh, no. <laughs> there's somebody out there is like, oh, I'm going to copy that. I actually, that actually, there was an artist. Um, somebody came up to me and said, oh, you've got two booths. It's like, no. Why'd you sell this one? Well, somebody over there has, a, has your work too. Oh, um, no. They did. They had absolutely duplicated my work. And there wow. <laughs> Oh, wow. I just couldn't imagine being in that, in that spot, you know, like realizing someone at the same show is. Oh, that was a little weird, but I mean, it happened twice. We showed up at the same show twice. Wow. Oh my gosh. Such different things and our visions are different. And even if we're the same medium, we're going to have such different takes on it. And like you said, there's room enough for everybody. There really is room enough for everybody. Yeah. And it's only when commerce comes in comes into play that we start thinking that, well, we need to get rid of this quote unquote competition. Did you travel to like different states and things like that? Oh, oh yeah. There, uh, at the height, I was doing 26 shows a year. Wow. Oh my gosh. For the most part, I mean, I, I was kind of making a living. I also was doing some other consulting for nonprofit groups. But, you know, most artists have to have a job. I mean, it's a re- it's hard to make a living as well works. It's really hard. There are people who could do it, but you have to work every weekend and you have to travel a lot. And you know, I have seen climate change oh. dramatically have an impact on the art fair market because there are summers, and the last couple of summers have been like this, where almost every weekend there's a show someplace in this country that's getting wiped out by bad weather. Yeah, used to be that way. Absolutely. I, I hadn't even thought about that, you know. I mean, I, I think about climate change a lot, but then all of the shows, all of the things that are happening, the events outdoors, oh my gosh. Well, it's a livelihood. Right. Exactly. And your life. <laughs> yeah, like that's what you do. So you're in Alabama, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So you have, I mean, I, I've watched over the years how the tornadoes in the yeah. spring have moved from the St. Louis, you know, from Kansas and Missouri, and they've dropped south. Mm-hmm. We don't have as much of them anymore as you guys have. Yeah, we're, I mean, we'll, our schools will close down. Everything closes down. We all, you know, go into our safe places and stuff like that. And I mean, it's getting into the springtime when all of those our events are, you know, normally out there. And you think about somebody who has probably planned, you know, out these art shows that they're going to be at all this time. Well, they've had to apply to them and be accepted to them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And they're, and they're, you know, maybe they've been doing that same show for the last five, 10 years. And it's one of their, most important ones and and they're just wiped out you know i can tell you on any given weekend there are artists driving home trying to figure out how they're going to pay their mortgage that week or that month 
because they didn't make what they needed to make. I mean, it's happened to all of us. I mean, the most, yeah. the most terrifying experience for me was just, it was right during the Great Recession, which was so awful for so many of us. And I did a show that I normally did five, $6,000 at. Mm. And so, you know, when times are tough and when money's tight, you're figuring out how much money you need. For them. Yeah. And you need to figure out how much you need to sell. And yeah. expensive, you know, it probably costing you a thousand dollars to do the show and you got to watch that much work walk out of your booth. And then you're thinking, how can I make sure I pay all these bills? Okay, we've got to make this much money. Okay, normally make this much of the show, I'll be okay. So going home from that show, I made $45 of that show. Oh my gosh. Terrible show. The weather was terrible. People just didn't come out. We were closed a lot of the time. And, you know, you're just going, what am I going to do next? And that's what's happening with a lot of art fair artists every mm-hmm. weekend. Every weekend. Yeah. So I would absolutely say to art fair, to art fair goers, please stop asking for discounts. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you may have to get there with your product your bag and ask for a discount. These people are just speaking out. And they don't realize that, you know, the tent costs money, the booth space costs money, um, the travel costs money. I mean, they have, they're, they're laying out some money just to be there if they're not a local artist. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, just to get a space at an art fair, it generally costs three fifty to six hundred dollars just to be mm-hmm. there. For yeah. So buy stuff from art fairs. I'm not doing art fairs anymore. So <laughs> this is not selling. <laughs> buy from art fair artists. Get to know the work. Find out what kind of a really wonderful place that you need to have for your home, and don't walk in and tell people that your walls are all filled up and you're just there for entertainment. <laughs> So where all can people find your work? Okay, I've got a couple of websites. Um, I've got an art website, which is vogelpix.com, V-O-G-E-L-P-E-P-I-X.com. And it's just kind of where it's, it's all of the art that I've produced is generally on there. And then I have another site, which is a sales site, which is vogelfiberart.com, which is okay. I have a lot of fiber work and some some photography, a little bit of photography. So I've got tapestries there. I've got some ankle straps, like guitar straps. And oh, okay. And things like that, dog leashes. So if I've, you know, every once in a while, you just want to make something practical. I, I want to make something practical. And I kind of look at it as clearing my palette. Oh, yeah. I something that's just, um, just a little more hands-on and doesn't require something doesn't require thought because it does it's, it's all yeah. technical but it just it's a little more repetitive yeah yeah like repetitive nature of some kinds of weaving thank you so much for talking to me today Dean. Oh, this was so great I thank you so much for inviting me this was wonderful yeah I'm excited too because you're one of the few fiber artists that I've talked to I have actually talked to some other photographers but they were men. (laughs) We love you guys, but thank you so much for listening to this episode of art talk with April. For more information on this episode, join the Facebook group, the art lounge, please subscribe and share. See you next Tuesday. Hope you have a great week.